if you remember being here with us at uh, Advent and Christmas, you'll remember this phrase, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. I want to impress upon you an idea that Jesus, in his overcoming of the temptations of the devil in his time in the wilderness, is as important as his incarnation and the waiting time that Israel went through in the Advent, uh, that we that we experience through the Advent. As in, everything that Christ does in his coming, in his living, in his dying, it is all a progressive victory over and against the powers of darkness. And the scriptures tell us that by the inclusion of this phrase uh, being tied, if you remember back from Isaiah, I think it's chapter 2 or 7, it doesn't really matter, you can find it. Uh, this, this, pra- this prophecy is directly implicating Jesus coming in the flesh, but here the gospel writer is using it to say that not only was light coming into the world when Jesus was being incarnated, but through the temptations that Jesus overcame, he is revealed as the light of the world. And and this is what happens uh, when Jesus emerges from the scene. He begins to demonstrate uh, his time as the light of the world. And so this is the day, um, traditionally in the, in the calendar, we would be, if I was doing a better job, we would be talking about the Mount of Transfiguration today. However, uh, we are transitioning into these things, and so I I like to help uh, undergird things that we do as a church with with information from the Gospels as to their importance. Therefore, we are discussing today how we're moving out of this season of Epiphany, Jesus being manifested to Israel as the Son of God, and into this time of Lent, which is a recapitulation or a reworking or a re-experiencing of Jesus' time in the wilderness. It's not just 40 days because 40 days is a nice biblical number and we like biblical numerology. Is It, it is intentionally uh, repeating in the believer's life the fast that Jesus went through. And so we're, I'm going to talk to you about why Lent is important and why it's important in the light of these things, not just because it's something we do. Uh, what is the reason for the things that we do in our traditions and in our practices? And so with that in mind, um, I thought it helpful to to go through this very passage uh, that, that talks about Lent. Now, Lent is not starting today, so you don't have to go home and throw out all of your food. Uh, you, you, you're not going to start fasting. You can if you want, but uh, Ash Wednesday, which is the, this is the first year we're going to do an Ash Wednesday service. Um, we probably won't be putting ashes on you if you know anything about what they do on Ash Wednesday, mainly because we're just getting started with these things and, uh, you know, we don't have any old palm leaves. So, and we're not going to borrow them from, we're not going to steal them from another church. Um, traditionally on Ash Wednesday, you, you take the palm branches that you wave on Palm Sunday the year prior and you burn them and with those ashes. It, and it's to, it, it, the symbol behind it is that at Palm Sunday, their, their, their praises, symbolized by the palms, quickly turned to nothing. And, and the, the very people who were worshiping Christ as he was coming into Jerusalem were then, in a few days, shouting, crucify him. And so, um, we're going to have an Ash Wednesday service. That is when Lent begins. And uh, I thought it would be helpful to just kind of explain what Lent is, why we're doing it, what 
what it means for us, how, it, how are we to actually experience it with faith? Uh, it's my opinion that tradition not explained cannot be participated in with the fullness of faith and the fullness of experience that, that God intends for you to, to worship him through. If we are to worship in spirit and truth, it must be the case that we're not ignorant of the reasons why we do things. So, um, just like when we were going into the time of Advent the, these last two years, uh, so also today we're going to talk about why Lent is uh, celebrated as a church and, and why we're doing it. So, um, with that in mind, I wanted to look at seven things. Uh, why, why we have seasons and why we celebrate things. I want to look at how we commemorate Jesus' fast through the, the season of Lent. I want to look then at the temptations that the Son of God faced in the midst of each of the temptations that Satan presents to him, there is a more subtle temptation. And I think that without examining those, we, even if we fast perfectly in this Lenten season, if we don't get to the root of what those temptations are, then we won't fast victoriously. Uh, I want to look at the actual three temptations themselves, the forbidden food, which is a re-experience of the garden, the testing of God, the false worship that that Satan uh, tempts the Lord with, and then finally, what is Jesus' victory over Satan, and how does that shape and inform everything that we do or, or consider to do during the time of Lent? So, it's my opinion that man, all mankind, all mankind, men and women, whether you like it or not, you are a decorator, man. You are a decorator. And with that in mind, people shape their world, they decorate their world in a way in which accords to the reality that is going on outside and around them. For example, if you ever want to see this, uh, ask me, and then I will call Daryl Freshour and ask him to let you into his house. Jordan, his mother, uh, Cindy Freshour, is the, is the best example of this that I know. Their house changes on a dime when the seasons change. As in, you know, they put up, when it's fall time, there are like, they, you know, glue leaves together. And I mean, it's basically, it's, it's phenomenal. And it's not to, it, that's not embarrassing. Man decorates his, his or her environment like the world around them. And so, you know, when, when fall time comes, there's, you know, wreaths and leaves and berries and nuts. And when winter comes, there's, you know, uh, pine wreaths and maybe Christmas trees and things like this. And then when spring comes, you know, what is it? Out with the old, in with the new. That's spring cleaning is a natural outgrowth of the nature of man. We decorate and we shape and we beautify the world around us. And so as the seasons change, the decorations change as well. Likewise, for the pagan, nature and the changing of the seasons totally determine the mode and the content of decoration. When the seasons change, that's when their decorations change. But for us as Christians, we believe that the things that God has done in his unfolding of the redemptive plan of, of salvation, those things are more world-shaping than even the seasons themselves. What Christ has done in defeating the devil through successfully avoiding and fending off every temptation that was brought to him is more important and is what the true meaning of spring is all about. And so for, for us as Christians, the, the revolution of the earth around the sun and the, the changing of the seasons, that is a diminished role in how we uh, inform our, our celebration, inform our decoration, inform our culture. What we do as Christians uh, 
is superseded over and against the seasons themselves. And it's my opinion that to celebrate Lent right, uh, you have to be informed about why we do it, when we do it, and what, what it means. Through celebrating particular seasons of remembrance and celebration, the church, therefore, be, because of their superimposing the things of God on even the natural world, we live prophetically before the world, testifying of the prime importance of the Creator over His creation. What I mean by that is as we begin to intentionally live lives, decorating them with the things of God and not just haphazardly or without any sort of circumspection, uh, we begin to testify of the importance of the things that those symbols signify. We just got a uh, a little cross. We bought it down at Dayton Church Supply. Uh, we were there to pick up uh, some brochures on you know, um, pieces of cloth and such. And we, we bought a cross. It was $12. It was extremely cheap. But one of the things that, you know, one of the things that we, uh, the reason why we did that uh, was because we wanted to decorate our house. And we have, if you've been to our, my house, we have all these nails that they've left behind. They just painted screws, big ones, small ones. And so we can't rip them out of the wall unless we want to repaint because they've been painted over. And, uh, you know, at this point, we just need to decorate. And so when we decided to, uh, to go to that store, you know, I didn't go in there thinking, you know, I need to buy a cross or I, I, I just need to have this. But when I saw it, I thought to myself, you know, it would be nice to have a reminder in my house all the time, even if I'm just, you know, walking about the house. We put signs and symbols around us to remind us of the things that God has done. That's decoration, but we also, the the other side of that coin is the celebration of seasons. And with that in mind, Lent is uh, a particular uh, time for a particular reason. I mentioned this earlier, but just as Christians harness the winter for the celebration of Advent and Christmas, so also the church has seen the purpose of spring as serving a reminder of the things that God has done. Lent literally comes from the word uh, getting longer. Uh, the German word for spring is literally the date when the days start to get longer. If you notice, daylight savings time is is happening because uh, we're exerting control over time. And Lent actually comes from the German word for spring, the time when the days get longer, and yet it also distinctly marks the period of fasting and preparation for the Holy Week. For the German Christians, they have so enculturated Christianity into their world and ideas that the very word for spring is the same word for the period of fasting that the church goes through. And to me, that is a rich and beautiful idea that that the things of God that we intentionally celebrate throughout the year are so important that they begin to fold themselves into the same ideas as seasons. That's amazing to me. That's, that, is, that is redeeming seasons for the Lord. So, just so you know, Lent starts on Ash Wednesday. It's a period of 40 liturgical days, and by liturgical, I mean not Sundays. You never fast on Sundays. Um, at least, historically, Christians have never fasted on, on Sundays because they see every single Sunday as a celebration of the resurrection. What we're doing here today, the reason we praise God through song, through voice, through instruments, the reason we give to Him, the reason we do Everything that we do is a remembrance of the resurrection of the Son of God. And so, therefore, you can't ever fast 
And you can't, you can't mourn because the bridegroom is with you on Sundays. That's basically the reason why Sundays have historically been excluded from fasting. I don't think you can do a 40-day total fast by breaking it every week, but I don't want to get into the whole uh, you know, actualities of how you're going to fast. I want to talk about the heart motives that are necessary behind your fast if you're to celebrate Lent the right way. So through Lent, we remember the period of fasting that Jesus endured before the beginning of his public ministry. Lent has no other purpose other than that and the preparation of a believer for Holy Week. That is, before we go and experience and, and remember the things of, that Christ did for us in his passion, starting on Monday, Thursday, going through the, the resurrection, uh, that, that week, we, we remember those things uh, having been prepared through Lent. So Lent is an intentional season of preparation through prayer, fasting, etc. And so let's get into the text. Matthew 4 verses 1 and 2, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The reason the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness was for temptation, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Notice in this passage that the tempter comes at the end of the fast. Uh, Jesus is, is fasting for 40 days. And during this time of, of Lent, we engage in fasting, prayer, and repentance in remembrance of our Lord and what he did. And so this is a time for us not just to abstain from food. It's a time for increasing awareness of our functional idols. Those functional idols are things which begin to supersede uh, a, a place in our hearts that is reserved for the Lord alone. You don't fast from food because food is inherently bad. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe that the created order is wrong, and therefore we're trying to get away from it. But rather, during the time period of Lent, all fasting, its spiritual implications are that I am going to make sure that food does not have a higher uh, rank in my heart and order of devotions than Jesus Christ. And and with that in mind, fasting is a, a very ex, uh, explicit and effective way to check those uh, those idols. If you've never heard the idea of a functional idol, it's, it's just a phrase that, that talks about anything that occupies a position in our heart greater than the Lord. And it can be anything at all, relationships, food, drink, power, sex, ambition, greed, money. Money's extremely easy in our culture to get obsessed about. And during the time of Lent, we abstain from those things and devote ourselves more intentionally to the Lord, not to earn favor from God, but rather to position ourselves to receive more from the Lord. Fasting does not merit you grace from the Lord. Fasting rather positions your life in such a way that you, if any are there, you, you slay functional idols and repent. And so you don't fast because these things are evil, but you are fasting to eradicate indulgence. That idea that you are relying more on food to satisfy you than on the grace of God. That you are relying more on drink and celebration to prop up your emotions rather than being filled with the joy of the Lord. And so this it's not that we abstain from food or drink during Lent because of the inherent badness of them, but rather to check our hearts and to expose wrong motives and wrong wrong ways of believing about the world that take place of God. And so with that in mind, if it is not focused, if, you're, if your fast during Lent is not focused on encountering the Lord, you are missing the point entirely. No matter, no matter if you buy a juicer or buy special crackers or something like that, you are getting it wrong. You're, you're actually putting your own nutritional 
uh, ideals as an idol over and against the point of your fast, which is to encounter God. And so uh, I stole this from Mike Bickle, freely admit, we do not fast to move God's heart, but rather to position our own to receive from him freely. The grace that comes to you during extended periods of abstaining from food does not come because you have merited God's favor. You totally, as a believer, have God's favor because of what Jesus Christ has done through his substitutionary atonement on the cross, taking the place for your sins, and uh, and offering you peace, declaring to you peace from God, and by faith entering into that, that is how you merit grace. It, it's totally a, a free gift from God. It's not anything that you do. And so, in the midst of your fasting, do not revert back to a law mindset of how you approach these things. It's my opinion that we, if, if we're to engage in a Lenten fast correctly and with godly motives, you must see how Jesus Christ has fasted already on your behalf. That is the point of Lent, is to re-encounter and to experience that victory. So um, Jesus' encounter with Satan uh, in, in this way, uh, it provides a framework for understanding the difference between reliance on God and reliance on self. That is what the season of Lent is about. It is about making an intentional statement saying, I do not rely on myself. I do not rely on the, the things from the world. I do not rely even on the natural world itself, but rather my true source of life. As we said in the creed today, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, your true source of life is from God first. And, and so that's what we do when we go through Lent. In the midst of each specific temptation that we're going to look at today, the devil crafts a more subtle and uh, tempting, uh, enticing temptation. If you um, are any student of the Word, uh, you may have noticed, uh, we're going to look at in Genesis 3 in, a, in just a second, you may have noticed that the, the, the serpent or the devil is talked about as one who is subtle or crafty. And I think that's an important word. Matthew 4, 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Though Christ at this point is hungry and weary, the real temptation is not to eat, but to doubt his position as a Son of God. Notice the first introductory words that Satan offers. And before Jesus could possibly succumb to this temptation, he would have to begin to doubt his relationship to the Father and feel like he needed to prove it. What is the challenge from the devil? If you are the Son of God, do this. He, he sets up a logical condition. If you're the Son of God, you obviously have authority to do whatever you'd like to the created order. Therefore, prove it. And this is the subtle temptation in the midst of all temptations, is to doubt the relationship that you have to the Father. The, the salvation that's been declared to you through the gospel is uh, sufficient to, to bank on, the, to place your foundation on, in the midst of every single temptation. And it is at the heart of all the other temptations that the devil offers to Christ in this uh, passage. The original temptation in the garden concerned taking food that was illicit. If you remember uh, Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty. Again, as I said, that word is actually subtle. The, the serpent was more subtle than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Adam's sin in the garden was reviewing of God's authority and provision. 
the the serpent enticed Adam and Eve basically to doubt did God actually do this did did you hear God right are your are your ears truly hearing from the Lord have you understood God wrong though Adam and Eve could eat from any tree in the garden they listened to the voice of the the devil creating a false desire a lack of contentment with what they had if you've never imagined the garden of eden uh, or ever been to a nice garden i encourage you go to a garden there's botanical gardens that have butterflies uh, i went to one with with the grays in, in columbus and it was phenomenal i've been to many of these uh, they're beautiful there's trees everywhere they make these pathways and there's streams and and this place had butterflies which was awesome but if you've never imagined the beauty of the Garden of Eden and then saw this temptation in the midst of that, it, I'd, I'd challenge you next time you read this passage, spend some time thinking. Adam and Eve had literally every tree they wanted from in the garden except for one. They had all of their desires met through God's provision and in the order that God had established, God had made Adam, he had made Eve, he had placed them in the garden, he gave them every tree and its fruit for food, and yet they were totally content. And what does the tempter do? He creates a false desire, creating an appetite where there was none. Up until that point, they had never wanted to eat from that tree, and yet they come into this situation where the devil shows up and, and lies to them, and creates an appetite for something that's not normal, it's not natural. Likewise, the temptations that the Israelites encounter in the wilderness demonstrate yet again that they are not content with their portion. In, in uh, Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3, uh, Moses is rebuking, at, right at the second giving of the law, he's rebuking the Israelites for their unfaithfulness during the time in the wilderness. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Sound familiar? What Jesus does in his 40 days of fasting and successful overcoming of temptation is establish and demonstrate himself as God's servant, Isaiah's phrase, uh, Yahweh's servant, who will do God's will and be content with God's portion. And this is at the heart of the temptation. It's not just that Jesus was uh, hungry, but rather what, what Satan is basically doing is tempting Jesus to doubt God's provision and God's will. If Jesus actually should command the stones to, to become bread, he would first have to believe that the Spirit really hadn't led him to the wilderness to fast, or worse than that, that the Spirit was wrong in doing so. Basically, Satan is saying, God told you to fast, God told you to go to the desert, but you can make provision for yourself. This is, this is at the heart of every temptation that you and I face. What, what is the temptation for single people who are battling lust? It's to reach out and grab something that God hasn't provided to them. What's the battle for married people who engage in lust? It's to reach out and grab something that the Lord hasn't provided for them. What's the battle in greed? It's to be discontent with your position in life and to reach out and try to either steal or to, through abu abusing your work situation, whether it's cheating or workaholism, is to reach out and grab money that, that God hasn't dispensed to you. 
This is in the midst of every temptation. And Jesus overcomes these because he is satisfied with his position as God's son and his position in the will of God. That's how you and I have to overcome temptation. Not because I know lust is bad, I'm not going to lust. I'm, I know greed is bad, I'm not going to steal. That's not how we, we don't, we don't overcome temptation by remembering the law alone, although it, preserve, it provides a warning for us. We overcome temptation by remembering the provision God has for us and in God's love, deciding, no, I'm just going to stay home. I'm just going to stay here with the Father. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give in to the devil's temptation to prove my relationship with the, with the Father. Jesus defeats the temptation of the devil, quoting exactly Moses's rebuke of the Israelites, Matthew four four. But he answered, "It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God." Jesus is demonstrating the words that God gives to me, the position, the direction, the word of the Lord is my sustenance. It is the thing that I bank my life on. And his will and provision are more important, even though I'm at the point of near physical exhaustion and death. If you've ever been in a wilderness or a, a place without food, it's spiritually depressing. It's not beautiful. It's not uh, a place that you would like to be. You usually try to get out of there very quickly. Jesus is hungry and in a wilderness. And yet he says, the Spirit led me here. I am the Son of God. I don't, I'm not going to doubt my relationship with the Father. I'm not going to try to prove it, but rather God's word is my true food. He says other place, another place in the gospel when he's doing his public ministry and the disciples are, are like, Rabbi, you, you need to eat. And what does he say to them? I have food that you don't know of. What did Moses say manna was? It was food that you didn't know and food that your fathers didn't know. What, what Moses is saying, what Jesus is saying is, the food that accords with a believer, a son or a daughter of God, is the will and word of God, not, not natural food. And, and through the fasting that we encounter and engage in in Lent, we are demonstrating and living prophetically of that truth being real to us. So the devil tries again, quoting from Psalm 91, that Psalm speaks of a mighty deliverance and safety that comes from God. And the devil in quoting Psalm 91 perverts and twists the intention. The intention of Psalm 91 is that the safety and provision and salvation that comes from God is something that is just there for, for those who are in God's will. But in his quotation, the devil twists it saying, you're not going to just rely on, but you need to, again, prove it demonstrate it. Are you really God's servant? If so, then do this to demonstrate that you really are in the will of God. The devil took him to the holy city, told him to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Now, I'm not going to have time to get into this, but if you understand the symbolism here, Jesus is going up to the temple. The devil is saying, hey, I know that you came to destroy your own body through offering it up. Uh, do it now. And, and or else demonstrate that it's not your time to die. And in the midst of this, Jesus basically is saying, I'm not going to do that. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. It is not the time for the body of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, to be destroyed and raised back up. And in, in the midst of this temptation, the devil is subtly getting at an idea behind, again, this idea that Jesus is the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. 
Jesus sees the falsehood and the temptation and overcomes. And he says in Matthew 4, 7, Jesus said to him again, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Finally, the devil attempts to persuade Jesus concerning inheriting the world. If you've noticed, there's been a progression here from food to worship and uh, from, from food all the way to worship, stopping in between with uh, provision and safety. These are dimensions of life, how you eat, how you travel, how you, how you live in safety or not. And then finally, what is the purpose of your life? What is the goal of your life? The devil explicitly knew the purpose of the life of Jesus. And so he tempts him to short circuit. This is probably the most important temptation, although they're all equally uh, tempting. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, if that doesn't sound mystical to you, I don't know what would capture your, you know, when Jesus in Luke 11 is has sent out the 70 and they come back and, and Jesus is kind of just it's like a, a trance like Jesus in the Gospels. He says, and I was beholding Satan fall from lightning, fall like lightning from heaven. That is, all the disciples were out in, the, in Galilee doing signs, wonders, miracles, healing people, casting out demons. And Jesus is saying, I was up on this mountain and I was looking in the spirit and I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's pretty pretty awesome. I, I think that's this situation too. They were in the wilderness and then out of nowhere, they go from a wilderness near Galilee to a, a really high mountain where you can see all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, this is an amazing verse. He said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Again, the, the biblical symbolism here should be clear. Uh, this is explicitly quoting and making reference to the establishment of the mountain of the house of the Lord. The goal of Jesus Christ's life and passion was to bring the kingdom of God into the world and to live as God's servant. Therefore, one day inheriting all the families of the earth, being the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that one day all through Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And also all of the prophets, major and minor, whatever key of profit you'd like, uh, says all the nations will stream to Christ. You can look Zechariah 8, Micah 4, Isaiah 2, Jeremiah 2, Isaiah 66. All of them say all the nations of the earth will stream to the Lord to learn from him, to receive his law, to, re to bring him wealth, to glorify him. And so what is Satan doing? He's asking, he's tempting the Lord with a short circuit of God's will for his life. The temptation is that Christ would obtain his glory apart from the plan of the Father. How does Jesus overcome? He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Not only is Jesus not going to bow to Satan, it's not just about physical prostration before, before Satan, it's also about how does Jesus live his life. Jesus lives his life by doing God's will, and that is worship. There, it's a both and. It's not just physical prostration. It's also Jesus saying, I am going to live my life according to the will of God, and I will go and obtain my glory when it's God's timing and will for me to obtain it. I'm not going to short circuit my, 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 uh, my father's plan.
The central temptation in all of these is to doubt the will and goodness of God. And Jesus' victory over Satan comes about not through strong-willed defiance against succumbing to temptation, but rather by a strong and secure anchor in the belief of the Father's care for him and hope concerning God's promises to be fulfilled. Jesus did not overcome the temptations merely by quoting memorized scripture. It was an internal reality to him as well. And so this is the point of our Lenten fast, is to engage in, to dialogue with these things that have pull in our hearts. The, the year as, this year as we celebrate Lent, we have to, let us, let us do this in knowing that the battle in the wilderness has already been won for us. You are not going into Lent uh, alone as if you have to defeat Satan in the wilderness alone. Satan has been defeated for you, and you will face temptation, but you have been taught how through the example of Christ. But not only have you been taught through an example, the actual victory that you need has already been obtained through Christ, through what he did in the wilderness and what he did on the cross. Jesus overcomes the devil in the wilderness, which we remember and celebrate in Lent, culminating both in the church calendar and in the gospel in Jesus's passion, where he says, now, mind you, there is a period of three years, but the reason the the calendar is set up is because the overcoming of temptation is the same way that Jesus overcomes the temptation, both in the garden and moment by moment as he's sacrificing himself for us on our behalf. In the upper room, Jesus gives a hint to that fact, that those are really the same temptation. He says in John 16, 32 through 33, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice the closeness of those phrases. The Father is is with me, therefore I've overcome the world. The temptation that Satan brings to you is to doubt your position as a son or daughter of God. It's to attempt to get you to prove your relationship with the Lord, as if you could ever demonstrate it or prove it. And in the heart of all the temptations that you and I will fat, uh, experience during this time of Lent and the rest of the year and all the rest of our days, those temptations are to prove it, to doubt God's will and provision, to rethink and reevaluate God's word concerning how we structure our life, how we behave, how we eat, how we drink, how we, how we celebrate, how we, how we refrain from celebrating. All of those things are to be informed by our relationship with, with God. And until we rest in that, no matter of strife in the wilderness will ever become victorious. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us an ability to rest in you, that we would both place our foundation on our relationship that you have brought us into, that through your son, Jesus, you adopted us as sons, as daughters into your kingdom, and that you, Jesus Christ, are the foundation for us Lord, we do ask that you would give us this, se- this season an ability to fast, but not that, not just that, but that the inward reality of us trusting in you in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of the time that we're brought low, that we would understand that we are in your care, that we are not without you in the world, but that you are with us. Lord, I do ask that you would help us to overcome temptation, not by us just trying harder or 
doing more on our, on our own, but rather that we would bank on the fact that you are our Father and you are here. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.